Welcome to another episode in a series of conversations at the Greenhouse Gas Management Institute. This time, a personal carbon decision. Should I fly or should I drive? Hi, Michael. Welcome back. Hi, Don. Good to be back. Today, I hope, is going to be fun. Uh, and this one, I think our listeners uh, deserve to uh, a peek behind the curtains. By that, I mean often you will hear uh, Michael and I greet each other at the beginning of these podcasts, and we often talk about our travel since we last spoke or we last saw one another. So last week, we sat down to do a conversation about carbon taxes, and I mentioned driving from Pennsylvania to Texas, and I had my gasoline consumption data, and I had gone off to the web and checked my uh, the carbon footprint for the alternative of flying, and I mentioned that to Michael, and uh, we erupted into a spirited conversation that went on for some 30 minutes. We had a great time, but we didn't record it. So we came back today to address this subject more seriously. Yeah, and the you know the issue here is um, more of a personal one. So this goes into the into the kind of series of podcasts where we take talk about sort of carbon management issues that you know affect us personally. We did one a while back on diet and vegetarianism and eating meat, and, and I think this one, given the fact that you know we all travel, air travel probably that are that are listening to this podcast, some more than others, some just for pleasure, some for work, some for both. It's something we all sort of have to, you know, need to think about and deal with. Um, I I do a lot more a lot more work travel than I would like, including long international flights that really, you know, it's by far the largest part of my carbon footprint. And Don, you've worked on the institute's um, organizational carbon footprint, and then by far it's the largest portion of uh, GGMI's carbon footprint as well. Um, in part Absolutely. because we're so uh, to toot our horn, we're so good at lowering all our other emissions with our the way we deliver our, our programs. But but we're aware, and so when the choice comes up, like should I drive or should I fly or should I take the train? I suspect you do. I know I do. I I ask the question, which one is uh, more carbon intensive? Which one's better in that regard? So here's the setup. So I drove from my home in Pennsylvania which is just west of Philadelphia, to uh, my family's ranch, which we've talked about on previous podcasts, in Texas, which is near Austin. So I recorded the drive. It was 1,760 miles one way, and I recorded the gasoline purchased and consumed. Uh, it turned out to be 73 gallons uh, one way. So 1,760 miles, 73 uh, gallons in a minivan, for a family of three, so this is uh, three persons plus the dog. And so I asked the question, what is the carbon impact of my decision to drive versus flying? Now I have to say right up front, this is gonna be an imperfect analysis, uh, but it's not unlike many of the situations that, that we all as GHG practitioners face in our work. Uh, that is, um, you know, it's imperfect data and, and you don't, perfection's elusive. But, but nevertheless, I, I made a comparison. And what's more, I've made this trip uh, multiple times. I've done it by car and by air. So I have a reasonable basis for making a, a realistic comparison. And I use that to inform the analysis that, that we're going to go into in just, just a moment. Now, 
Uh, the closest airport to me is Philadelphia, and the closest airport to my uh, destination is Austin, Texas. But you can, can't conveniently fly from Philadelphia directly to Austin anymore. So now I have to connect through, most times, Dallas-Fort Worth. So uh, I took that into account, going from Philadelphia to Dallas, and then from Dallas to uh, Austin. And in this analysis, I'm going to ignore the uh, night in the hotel, uh, because um, I, I couldn't drive that straight. Uh, we did uh, stay in a hotel for a night. And I'm also look, re disregarding the local auto going to and from an airport e uh, on each end if you were to fly. So that's, uh, that's kind of the setup. So what did you find? So here's what I did uh, to do this. I, I went to the internet and I searched on the, word, the words flight carbon calculator. Now I did this in Google's Chrome. And the reason I mentioned that is it's probably going to be relevant in a moment. Uh, but I did it in uh, what's called incognito mode. And, and by doing that, you're telling Chrome and Google not to use any of the personalization that they've, uh, they've built up about me. So it's as if a stranger is going to a, a fresh uh, view into the internet and asking for flight carbon calculator and looking for what the search engine brings back. And, and indeed, it brought me back many results. I picked the, the first five that came up and entered the data, and that is the flight data from Philadelphia to DFW uh, or Dallas-Fort Worth and the flight data from Dallas-Fort Worth to Austin and recorded the results. So what did you find? Uh, first, um, and I, I was surprised, but I shouldn't be, all of the carbon calculators came with the opportunity to purchase offsets. And you know, um, that wasn't what I was after. I was after the carbon footprint, but it makes sense. That's a business model by the uh, websites. And websites and you know are businesses, they cost money and they have to have a business model uh, in order for them to be out there. So that was first thing, uh, first surprise. The second surprise was I got different results from five different calculators. Now, I'm not all that surprised, but the results, the difference between the results were bigger than I would have expected. Because of that, I, I had to ask myself, all right, how, Don, how are you going to compare these things? And um, uh, Michael knows, but maybe all of our listeners don't know, I, I went through pretty extensive software testing at the Institute on uh, various uh, carbon management software suites and we developed software testing protocols so I, I borrowed a little bit from that and and uh, one of the first things you do is you choose your reference and in my case I chose WRI's tool the emissions from transport and mobile sources uh, tool that you can find on their website and I use that as my baseline now I don't know if that's right or better but it's simply there. It's something we can uh, we can compare to, and more often than not, doesn't lead to a lot of argument because people basically accept the tools from uh, WRI and GHG protocol is uh, something that doesn't have a commercial interest and is uh, unbiased and and readily available, etc. Yeah, I worked on the, I developed the GG protocol stationary combustion tool, at least their, their, the original version. Um, but yep. yeah, the, um, I think, I think you're right. I think that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a reasonable, reasonable reference. I mean, they're all, it, you know, the GG protocol tools are also meant to be, you know, they kind of try and balance, you know, being rigorous and 
and and and detailed, and but usable. also user yeah. user friendly. And there's always right. this tension that goes back and forth within the GHG protocol community about you know where to where to side. But but um, yeah, I think in terms of being unbiased um, and not not trying to you know skew the numbers or make them overly simplistic, and 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 having a resource that is you know gone through some reasonable level of of peer review, I think that's a that's a good a good place to start. And more often than not, correct me if I'm wrong, but more often than not, it's IPCC data on the back end of those things, driving exactly. calculations. So, uh, so uh, the net of all that is uh, we looked at six calculators and in, in all, five that came from the web plus the one that was used to, uh, to reference from WR. So let me cut to the chase with the results. Uh, so out of these five, I suppose I can give you the names, but it's not really important to, to the analysis. The first one came up was... Uh, uh, came up at, at a uh, URL called calculator.carbonfootprint.com. The second one was called Carbon Neutral Flights. The third one was called TerraPass. The fourth one was called Climate Friendly. And the fifth one was called My Climate. Now, I'm not going to dwell on the names because this is not a comparison of one versus the other in terms of which is better, etc. This is just the experience that was delivered to me courtesy uh, Google. So, when I considered the air alone, now uh, by that I mean plugging in the flight segments and looking at the results of the carbon from air travel alone and, and comparing that only to other uh, calculators for air travel, here's what I got. And remember, these are all reference to the WRI tool. So I'm, I'm giving you a ratio. So if the uh, WRI tool presented well, I'll give you the number. It, it, uh, for these uh, flight segments, it presented uh, 0.2 metric tons, 0.201 metric tons of CO2. Uh, that's my baseline. So everything else is going to be um, relatively uh, relative to that. The second one produced 0.28. So it's kind of hard to keep up with. But so I'm I'm going to shift to ratios. So the uh, the first calculator came up with a number that was 27% higher than the WRI uh, number. The second one came up with a number that was 77% higher. So that now we're getting into, you know, what's uh, remarkably higher. The third one failed. What do I mean by fail? Uh, I could not complete the calculation. And I suspect it was an incompatibility, a browser incompatibility issue with um, with Chrome and the website. And so I didn't have time, I didn't take time rather, to test it with another browser, so I just counted that one as a fail. Uh, the next one produced a result that was 71% uh, higher than the WRI number. And the final one produced a number that was 336% higher. So <laughs> quickly review, 27% higher, 77% higher, 71% higher, 326 percent higher. So what's up with that? First, you know, from a, a, a user perspective, and uh, I and, and most of the people listening are probably pretty deeply immersed in um, carbon calculations. And to our standards, most of these calculators are not very transparent. In other words, it's hard for you to see uh, what's going on on the other side. The first one, and I will give them props for this, calculator.carbonfootprint.com, did have a nice write-up on their methodology, and they were very transparent. The other ones, it was a little bit uh, more difficult to, to see. The biggest apparent difference is they uh, several of these calculators offered you a 
tick box to whether as to whether or not you wish to calculate emissions based on combustion only or combustion plus radiative forcing and all of my calculations when given a choice were done with that box unchecked that is not to include radiative forcing so this means you're only you're only calculating the co2 emissions from fuel combustion from the aircraft that's right to be honest i haven't spent that much time understanding what radiative forcing is. Could you help me with that? Sure. Well, first, uh, just to, to clarify, the, the, the absolute numbers you gave before, those were for one person to travel one way. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So you'd blow those up, you know, double those for a round trip and, and, and then triple that for three, the three people. For three people. That's correct. Um, and then factor in the dog however you want to factor in a dog. Well, the dog was uh, left out of the analysis. I'm sure he'll, he'll get over it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. If, you, if you, you have to pay to take dogs on planes now, don't you, for most part? I don't know. I, uh, I, uh, fly, uh, flying's gotten to be an unpleasant enough experience. I just can't stand the prospect of adding that extra layer of unpleasantness. <laughs> that, that, that's something we, we could talk about adding to the calculator. So what, what, what is the carbon footprint of a dog traveling? Yeah. Um, I guess it'd probably depend on how big a dog, maybe how big a dog and does it go in the t cargo hold or does it go in the, under the seat in front of you? <laughs> uh, I've, I've got stories about international flights, but I'll save those for another day. I've got one too for my last, my last domestic flight. Um, let's just say you ever seen two basically, you know, medium sized dogs running loose on a plane. Um, so I have not that well, I now have experienced it and had them sitting next to me anyway. Longer story. Um, well, when I, I got, got to share this. When we moved to Europe, my wife had me get the cat out of uh, the carrier somewhere over Greenland, take him into the bathroom, produce the portable litter box, and try to make magic happen. So <laughs> the, cat, the cat and I stared at each other for uh, probably the equivalent of 80 or 80 miles across Greenland. It sounds uh, like one constipated cat. And returned, <laughs> returned uh, uh, defeated to our <laughs> It's going to be um, a fun podcast. Yes. Um, but you asked about radiative forcing. Yes. Um, to, to completely spoil the humor. You know, radiative forcing is just a, you know, that's a, a, a general generic atmospheric, you know, chemistry, atmospheric physics uh, way of talking about essentially how much, how much heat, you know, is getting, is getting, you know, absorbed by the earth, uh, very okay. simply put. Um and with, you know, so it has to deal with sort of, you know, how the atmosphere and the earth absorbs, absorbs, you know, incoming, incoming uh, uh, solar radiation. Um, and, 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 you know, also then the balance of, you know, emitting infrared radiation back into space. And, you know, the net, the net radiative forcing is sort of how much extra heat the earth is absorbing and therefore heating up more. Um, and we call that global warming. Okay. Um, that's the non-scientific uh, explanation. Um, there's, you know, you can you can type it into a search engine if anyone or Wikipedia for people who want the the, the techie one with equations. But with respect to uh, uh, airline flights, um, there's a several kind of interesting aspects for aircraft emissions. And by aircraft, I'm I'm, I'm well, pretty much only talking about you know jet aircraft traveling at relatively high altitudes. You know your right. your your prop you know, propeller plane that's flying pretty low, low uh, elevation that this doesn't really apply to. Um, it's only when you get up, get up, you know, upper troposphere, you know, uh, levels that, that we're, we're talking about here. Okay. Um, or up in this, you know, uh, um, 
you know parts of the stratosphere potentially on the boundary. In addition to just the the the, the CO two aircraft, once you get up there, the emissions coming out of engines of water H two O because you know when you burn fuel, the, the hydrogen and the fuel combines with oxygen and you get water vapor. Yeah. Um, um, as we've all seen, those kind of white streaming. Um, sort of cloud creations coming off of the back of jets sometimes, not always. Contrails, yes. exactly. Those, you know, can have been shown to actually um, uh, nucleate and kind of spur off the creation of, uh, you know, high-level cirrus clouds. And, um, uh, and and you only get it under certain conditions of temperature and, and kind of pressure and moisture. So it, that's why you don't always see them coming off the back of jets. But when they do occur, you know, your basic, you know, planes are essentially creating clouds. Yeah. Um, and, and then they can, ex, you know, those, once you've kind of kicked off the process of creating a cloud, it can kind of grow and expand depending, again, depending on the conditions and clouds do a couple different things. They both reflect sunlight. So that's a cooling effect. Um, but they also can kind of provide a, you know, their own kind of insulating effect by, you know, preventing radiation from bouncing back up and, uh, and escaping back into space. So they kind of, you know. Act as it's a the blanket. balance as a blanket. So they have, you know, the balance of those two effects, you know, indicate, indicate, you know, what, what the overall impact in terms of radio forcing is on, on average, these new, the contrails and cirrus clouds will, will are, are believed based on the, you know, the science we have to be a net, a net warming, um, effect. And you also have various aerosol particles. So coming out of jet fuel, you have little, you know, it's not perfect combustion. So you have little bits of soot you know, black carbon particles coming out, which can right. also both absorb and reflect sunlight that, that's coming into the earth. And again, depending on the type of particles, you have, you know, small, as well as small sulfates, you know, sometimes there's a little sulfur, little sulfur in fuel. So those um, um, can also kind of, you know, have a net uh, uh, cooling or warming effect, or sorry, have a will cool or warm depending on the nature of the particle. Right. Um, Again, on, on net, um, the, you know, the best science we have says that they, it probably has a, a slight warming effect. There is, you know, all sorts of complicated chemistry that you get into in terms of the uh, uh, oxides of nitrogen, NOx emissions that come off of planes because right. you're combusting air at high temperature and pressures and you're sucking in nitrogen from the air and that gets, you know, through the, that, the, the combustion chamber and the jet turbine, you know, some of that creates creates various nitrogen oxides. Um, those can affect um, the ozone layer uh, and which itself is a greenhouse gas, which itself has, you know, has radio forcing impacts. They can uh, screw with the formation and destruction of methane in the atmosphere, which is itself a greenhouse gas. So those, those have various warming and cooling effects. Um, so there's all sorts of, you know, complicated, complicated chemistry going on once you get up into those high you know, higher in the atmosphere, um, that, that aren't as, aren't, I mean, similar processes happen here down at the ground, but, but, um, you know, they have a, a larger impact on radio forcing up high because you are essentially closer to the sun, um, as part, as part of the reason. Um, oh, okay. I don't want, and it's not, the, not the only reason because there's different chemistry up once you get up to that level too. Um, right. but, um, but, but that is part of it, part of, part of the reason. So all those complicated factors combined goes into basically a judgment of, you know, what is the additional radiative forcing impact of, of high altitude aircraft emissions um, uh, beyond just the CO2 
coming off of burning the fuel. And lots of science there, you know, you know, IPCC and their assessment reports have gone into it in detail. There's, there's been special reports on aviation um, as well. Um, and we'll put in some links in the show notes on some, you know, more, you want to go deep dive into the research on this. But for your purposes, for a carbon calculator, the question is, well, what do I do? <laughs> right. What do I do? Um, and it's not, you know, um, without, without, you know, becoming an aircraft emission scientist. Well, on, on the one calculator that, as I said, was more transparent than the others, it explained that uh, if you were to tick the box, that it would include a, the radiative forcing uh, and multiply the combustion-only result by a factor of 1.9, this factor coming from uh, DEFRA. Uh, so uh, that probably explains why the one outlier that was uh, 336% the, of the others, they probably included that in their, uh, in, in their calculation, but I have no way of knowing. And also have to you know, reflect on these websites are there to uh, these are my words, and, and I'm not going to include the links to the websites. I encourage everyone to go make your own your, your own uh, opinions. But these uh, these were there to uh, service the selling of offsets. So um, you know, it um, you, you if that's the case, you might forgive someone for for uh, being more inclusive in, in what's included in the, uh, the carbon calculation. But that wasn't my purpose. So uh, let me get to the, uh, uh, to, to the all-in number. So the all-in number uh, for three people flying according to uh, WRI was uh, 0.948 metric tons, so uh, just under uh, one ton. Uh, the, now, if we uh, make the comparison to road travel, in this case, I also use the, the same WRI tool, the mobile source tool, uh, for road with uh, the quantity of gasoline known. Uh, it turns out the emissions are 1.286 tons. So WRI to WRI tool, it's 36% more carbon intensive in this case to fly. Now, I was surprised by that. I really expected the flight, uh, the flight numbers to be uh, significantly higher. Uh, but frankly, because of all the energy uh, involved in, uh, in, in getting all that mass going at, at high speeds, at high altitudes. But, uh, but that was the number. Now, with regard to the other calculators, it's inconclusive. Two of them reported that air travel was less intensive for my family of three. Uh, three of them reported that driving was more, uh, uh, more intensive. So it was inconclusive, and I was a bit... Uh, taken aback and and surprised by that. Yeah, and unfortunately that doesn't make the the choice very very easy. Or maybe you you know just based on CO two you can you could argue you know, the difference isn't isn't huge. Um, and and no, you can, it's, you can it's treat not. them again if you're bundling. I mean it's obviously very different if you're if you're a single person driving in a car versus. I mean it really scales it scales significantly. Obviously when you can load Absolutely. a car up with more people. Um, the same is true of airplanes, uh, and yeah. uh, to the, uh, I'm, I'm not a big a fair fan of the airlines these days, but one thing they're doing well is filling seats. Almost they do, all yeah. of the, all the planes are, seem to be full. That's, they're that, all full, that's sure. so the utilization is good, so uh, that would help the per-person per carbon footprint. Uh, and, and some people probably here are going, well, you know, should I take the train? Because um, I think you know, we all know train would have been by far the most 
the most efficient. I think all, all the all the all the number crunching and studies will will show that. Um, that you know the trick, unfortunately, here in the U.S., um, you don't have train connections um, to a lot of places, and even if you do, and you're 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 trading off what you took you a couple days to drive, if you know, or you know, probably you know less than one day to fly a train to try and get to where you're. First off, you couldn't have gotten you could not have gotten all the way to where you're going on a train, and you, but the part you could have gotten to probably you know you probably could have made it to Austin. I would have guessed it would have taken you probably three or four days. Yeah, <laughs> uh, for sure. Now I happen to live on the East Coast, and, and trains are pretty good on the East Coast. And uh, and the misery index associated with flying has gotten such that I favor trains. So if I have yeah. to go to New York, Washington D.C., or even Boston, I will go to the train first. And yeah, that's even on the it, East Coast. That's the way to go. Unfortunately, if you try and yeah. get off of the East Coast, then it's more challenging. Then it's a problem. The other. Um, you know, these decisions are obviously uh, have much more texture than just carbon. Because I've made the flight recently, um, I, I can give you the I can give you the cost. the The gasoline cost for this trip was three hundred and seventy dollars round trip. The uh, three airplane tickets round trip uh, would have been one thousand one hundred and ten dollars. So it's right at three times more expensive to fly. Yeah. Uh, than it was for three people to drive in a car. And again, this is full of simplifying assumptions like, um, you know, not counting the hotel or meals yeah. or, or whatever. Or your time. Or the time. Is but in, time. in this case, um, I, my perspective has changed. Time with the family and seeing some of uh, the beautiful country is actually a big plus. So, yeah. so. But I think this points to the, to the you know, to, to why this debate around you know the radiative forcing multiplier on aircraft emissions is so is so sensitive um, for those that have you know uh, uh, ever looked into it or come across it um, because it really it, it really does shift it really does you know shift decision making to shift your priorities in terms of if you you know if you ignore it then yeah I mean driving an aircraft travel isn't doesn't seem that different um, but um, you know those that argue well you can't just ignore it because they're all you know these real these these you know radio forcing effects exist there's a lot of uncertainty Absolutely. around them Absolutely. but 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 we do know they exist we know we know they're not zero and and something you can ignore um, um, and still come up with a you know with a, a technically you know a credible analysis um, and so you know if you do you know the the um, you know some of the research on our um, uh, uh, core or carbon uh, carbon offset research and education website, which we'll give a link to on this. You know we've we've recommended essentially that the multiplier should be you know at least two, if not higher, to to you know to kind of take into account these radio forcing effects. So so there right off the bat, you know you're at least doubling you know the essentially CO two equivalent emissions from aircraft travel, and, and that really switch that really you know flips the flips the decision making now aircraft you know is is you know with under that accounting framework is is definitely you know much worse yeah definitely and my first reaction was uh was actually something else and that was um relating to my my ghg practitioner friends you know what are what are we to do uh what what are they to do because here they uh, they encounter uh different calculators that in some cases act like black boxes and they produce results that are um, in the case of what I believe to be apples and apples you know 77 uh, percent apart uh, so 
you know, that's pretty significant. It, uh, it tells you um, how, how much of an art we still have uh, and how the, the lesson to each of us is to really reach behind what you're given from your first Google result to try to understand what's going on in the background uh, so that you can be consistent, repeatable, uh, and true to the accounting principles if you're trying to uh, use uh, something like this to produce an inventory. Yeah, and there's all sorts of, you know, engineering and assumptions you have to make. I mean, and even embedded in, you know, the WRI tool and, and you know, other tools, you know, assumptions about aircraft type and, and uh, you know, uh, long haul versus short haul. You know, there's different, you know, sh short haul flights, you know, are, are more carbon intensive than, than, than longer haul per mile. Absolutely. You've got you've got issues of actually we said occupancy. You know how many how many how many seats are actually filled on the plane um, nowadays. You know it's typically most of them. Although I was on a flight um, to to Turkey one not too long ago, a couple months ago, and the flight was half empty. It's one of the few times I've had that happen, which was pleasant. Yeah. Uh, I hate to hate to admit, even though it probably arguably meant my carbon footprint on that flight was much higher. Um, at least my my portion of it. Um, and there's, you know, tricky things like what if you're in business class? What if you're in first class? You know, does that mean your emissions are more or less? It does, because that's all about allocating the total emissions of the exactly. machine to, uh, to each of the passengers in each of the seats. Uh, funny, the best practices in the airlines years ago was never to fill a, a plane more than 85% full because you get customer complaints. And uh, that best practice has been, has been left behind. <laughs> Yeah. It, it's also important, I'll, I'll go back to our engineering roots, and here I, I, I have an additional bias. I'm a pilot, uh, so I uh, have been exposed to the fuel planning that goes into um, even, you know, large aircraft. It's quite sophisticated. And the, um, the airlines have a rock-solid business process wrapped around exactly how much fuel goes into exactly which flight. And the pilots are engaged in that uh, that process, and there are business transactions. So, uh, the airlines actually have a uh, the data to do an excellent uh, uh, calculation on a particular flight. Uh, now, getting that emissions allocated down to the people on the flight that's a that's a bigger trick. And going from individual flight to what the fleet did uh, that that's also involves all kinds of assumptions, but uh, I did take a casual look at what Virgin Atlantic was doing, and um, they uh, they had a good business process wrapped around it, and I, be I believe their numbers were uh, pretty robust in terms of representative of, uh, of the flights, and, and they were offering the, the chance to offset them, so I actually had higher confidence in, uh, in, in those numbers than what I see here. The other thing I wanted to comment on, as I said, these sites all offered offsets. So uh, I got a chance to tour around uh, the kinds and the values of offsets. Uh, some gave you a choice. Uh, carbonfootprint.com gave you a choice between something called Global Portfolio, Reforestation Kenya, UK uh, Tree Planning, or the Certified Emission Reduction Offsets. And these ranged uh, in U.S. dollars per metric tons. They were at the low end, $11.79 to the high end of $18.47 on that site. Uh, another site didn't really tell you the offset source, but they wanted $16.11 U.S. per ton. Another one um, offered you two choices. 
and they were $14 a ton for one. The second one failed because of a, a probably browser issue. Another fail. This is a different site than my earlier fail. Uh, likely browser issues. The final one, uh, the, were, the offsets were really expensive. They ranged, the low was 27 US dollars to a high of 95 US dollars per ton. Uh, so uh, quite a diversity. It, uh, uh, it, it, it's not at all clear what one's buying when one uh, chooses to make uh, make a decision about offsetting simple flights like what I described here. Yeah, and it's all sorts of you know we could go on uh, for a dozen other podcasts on on obviously offsets and uh, you, know, you know there's factors in there and offset quality of of right as well as you know there's you know probably some profit you know profit margin in there for these different you know retailers. Um, oh sure. And that, uh, as as there should be, and likewise, somebody's handling the web transactions, and you know, there's there's lots of pieces here. Uh, final comment: It looked like two of these calculators were UK based, another was Australia based, a third was uh, from Berkeley, California, USA, uh, the fifth was from Switzerland. So they um, had quite a diversity that show up in the top five according to Google. Uh, so. Now, no surprise, uh, uh, there are more carbon-interested uh, regions of the world than the U.S. I was actually surprised that anything from the U.S. showed up in the in the top five. Okay, well, uh, that was fun. I don't know that we uh, led to any uh, any uh, resounding conclusions, but uh, I uh, uh, I was surprised by some of the stuff we found. Uh, we'll probably reflect on it, and you may hear more about this in the future. Uh, if any of you have uh, some comments, I, I once again want to invite you to uh, uh, put them on the site when you see this show go up uh, in the comments section or send us an email to podcast at ghginstitute.org. We would love to hear from you. Anything else, Michael? No, I think that's a wrap. Thank you all for your attention. We'll see you next time. As always, we welcome your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future conversations. Reach us at podcast at ghginstitute.org.